Why don't you go ahead and turn to Luke 16. You can tap, swipe, grab the Bible in front of you and turn there. But turn over to Luke 16. We're going to be in 19 through 31. As you're turning there by way of, of just kind of summary explanation, let me, let me catch us up. 16 chapters, there's a lot that has transpired in, in Luke. And let me, let me quickly hit on some high points that will kind of set the scene and establish where we're going with this. And you'll notice that, that, that Luke, when he begins, he has this long treatment of John the Baptist, right? The things surrounding his birth, his, his declarations, the substance of his teaching and preaching. And so you've got your finger in 16, you flip over a couple of pages, you're in chapter 3. And what we find is John the Baptist is encountering a number of people who seem to be living lives different from what they're professing. They're living lives, they're saying things that are not lining up with the way that that they are actually living their lives. And so he says to some of them that come out there in chapter 3, he says, and in, in, in starting in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's asking them a question. And he gives them this advice. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And so he's establishing that there's a decided difference between cultural heritage, who your parents were, who they believed in, and, and having individual faith. Okay? He's, he's driving in. He wants them to get this. He wants them to understand this. It's vitally important for them. It's vitally important for us. Flip over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, we pick up Jesus' talking, his teaching here, and this is, this is a parallel of Matthew 5. And he says this to them. Starting in verse 24, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so he's going in, he's establishing a kingdom method. What it is to live in Jesus' kingdom and what it is to be essentially an alien in that kingdom. He says, this is truth, and, and, and you have to accept this on the basis of what it is. He's establishing, laying the groundwork for what it is to accept and understand the gospel. So flip to 16. This is where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time today. Let me read it for us, and then we'll walk through together. Jesus sets up, and he teaches a parable. He teaches a parable. This isn't something we're going to seek to build our understanding and theology of, of heaven and what that's like. This is a parable. It's not concerned with, with teaching us about heaven. It's concerned with explaining a decidedly different message. And hopefully you arrive there at the same time I do today. Let me pick it up in 19. He says, There's a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Let's stop there and unpack this. This is the scene. This is the scenario. Luke gives us a picture of two individuals from radically different walks of life. And, and, and this, is, this is something that we can experience. This is something we can see. I mean, I go to Walmart, and I see people from decidedly different 
experiences and walks of life than myself. I, I, I go to Target and Rockwall, it begins to change even more. I go to Uptown Dallas, and it begins to change even more. Suddenly, they're looking at me and like, are you lost? Did you? I don't, this isn't, yeah, you're lost. You look like you need help. Can we point you in the right direction? Look, son, there's an exit. And so we, what we see here are, are people from two decidedly different backgrounds. The first guy we see is who? The text tells us he is a rich man. And then Jesus goes and he offers us a demonstration of this man's monetary wealth. He says this guy is, is draped in the finest of clothing that the day afforded him. Now, this doesn't sound like something I would wear, but it, it is the finest clothing that the day afforded him. He had purple robes. Man, he was decked out. It was the most expensive thing. This is all, on all the runways in, in Paris in the first century. This is the most elaborate thing that the man could wear, the most expensive thing anybody can imagine wearing. If I stepped out in purple, people would look at me and say, oh, you're a Tigers fan. It's been a rough season for you. No, they'd say, wow. There stands a rich man. So he had this outward adornment of, of rich clothing, and we find out that he also wore fine linen. So it's not just what everybody saw, but it was that thing close to his body as well, was this fine Egyptian linen that was imported at great personal expense to this man. He is the embodiment of monetary wealth. This guy had everything going for him. So it's not just what he wore, but it's also what he ate. Look at this. The text tells us that he feasted sumptuously every day. I don't know that I've ever feasted sumptuously, but that's, that's like the new goal for me. If I go to a feast, the first question I'm going to ask is, let me, let me ask you a question, friend. You're establishing this feast for me, Frank. You and Claudette want to have me over for dinner. Might you say that it's sumptuous? He, he would call Claudette and say, Claudette, we've got to raise the bar. Like we weren't even going to put out appetizers. Now this thing's got to be sumptuous. And see, it wasn't just that the man established a feast. And it's not that having a sumptuous feast is necessarily a bad thing. Do you remember the prodigal son? The son goes away. He spends his life uh, extending the inheritance that he'd received from his father. And, and, and it's only at the lowest point of his life that he recognizes his need to return. He comes back to the father. And what exactly happens at that moment? A lavish display is laid before him and, and one that's rightly should be called sumptuous but this is this man's daily habit every day he finds himself decked to the nines he's he's dressed to impress everybody that sees him recognizes his wealth because of the clothes he's wearing everybody that walks by his house smells the aroma of all the food being cooked for this man one individual, and all this food is prepared for him to please his stomach. He's satisfied in any and every way. Well, look at the one he's compared with. It says, and at his gate. So at this rich man's house, there is an immaculate gate. And at this gate, the, there's some people that take a poor man and they literally cast him down at the gate. He is laid there by others. And this guy, in our, in, our, in our minds, we see the rich man, and he's, he's dapper, and he's got all of these clothes, and he is just not a hair out of place. He is the embodiment of perfection and money. And, and, and what do we see this guy clothed with here? On the one hand, we see purple and fine linen. On the other hand, we see sores all over the man's body. See, the interesting thing, Jesus doesn't move to a discussion of how the poor man's dressed. 
but he figures him dressed with sores. So on the one hand, we see this display of wealth. On the other, we see this display that is utterly sickening. This man is covered with sores from his head to his toe. He's got these large open sores that are just oozing pus and disgust. Everybody that walked by the rich man's house would say, look there, there and there sits the rich man and he is, well, you've seen him. We all wish we could dress like him. And man, you can smell the festering sickness coming off this poor man's sores. And where the rich man feasted sumptuously every day, this poor man laying at the gate, open sores. He wasn't longing for a sumptuous feast. He wasn't longing for some elaborate spread. Verse 21 tells us that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Do you see the difference between the two of these? This this rich man who, who lived in the lap of luxury, he wanted for nothing. And at the end of his meal, he's, he's dusting off his face, he's, he's doing this and knocking all the crumbs off of his fine purple fabric and linen. And he stands up and he sweeps all the crumbs off this floor. That's, that's the best the poor man can imagine is a feast. See, it, 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 it blows his mind. He can't imagine this elaborate spread. In his mind, the best thing he could possibly get would be the crumbs off this other guy's floor. There's incredible disparity between the two of these. But if that's not enough, it goes on to say, moreover, each day, moreover, all the time, this guy is having his wounds licked by dogs. Even more, dogs came up and licked his sores. Now, some of you are, are cat people and you say that's terrible. Some of you are dog people and you're saying, look, they're trying to comfort him. Look, this isn't what he's talking about. He's not saying that, you know, at least he had canine friends, but what he's giving us a picture of is this understanding that in first century Judaism, dogs are not man's best friend. They're, they're, they're just, they, they haven't figured that out yet. They're not man's best friends. And so when they come up and they see this guy and his sores are oozing, whatever it is they ooze, He's already in tremendous pain and discomfort and now dogs are coming up and he's so weak he can't keep them away and they're feasting on him. They're aggravating the sores. They're they're keeping them open. They're causing him to grow sicker and sicker and sicker. And so it's no surprise to us to find that in verse 22 he dies. You notice that even in the the way they're treated in death shows the tremendous disparity between the rich man and the poor man. What we read here about the poor man is that he died. But skip down a little bit. We read that the rich man also died and was buried. Rich man died and his family loaded up and they go and they find the finest way to treat his earthly remains. They anoint him with perfume. They dress him likely in some same or similar purple robe. They have a procession, they go out, they put him in a tomb that is above ground. They spare no expense because money's no option. They're they're taking tremendous care of this man, this individual, and they go out and, and they have this feast in honor of him. But we find for the poor man that he simply 
dies. His body is likely found at the gate of the rich man. It's discarded. It's thrown on some trash heap. I remember when I was in college, I was in a philosophy class, uh, cheerfully named Death and Dying. And, uh, and the, we went to a funeral home one day, and this funeral home is in charge of handling the remains for the prisoners that die in the Texas state prison system there, centered around Huntsville. And we're in there, and he takes us in, and he's showing us, you know, nicer uh, caskets, and then he's showing us, you know, like the, the felt padded ones. Basically, it's cardboard wrapped in carpet. And then, so he's showing us these things, and he says, you know, this thing is worth this much, this thing is worth this much, and this thing, the state, this is what they provide. So we go back in, we're sitting there, and, and they start passing around unclaimed human remains. They start passing around people that have been cremated in their bodies and passing them around. Nobody's got any thought. Nobody's got any care about who this used to be, about their family. Nobody cared for them in life. Nobody's caring for them in death. We're passing it around because he wants us to see what human remains look like. How the weight that somebody feels at the end of their life. That's the lot of the poor man. That's the lot of the poor man. Comes to the end of his life. Nobody cared for him in life. No one cares for him in death. But there's a radical reversal about to take place. There's an amazing transference. There's an amazing transformation that takes place. You see those things that we see, those things that we have a temptation and a tendency to value, find a wonderful reversal in the kingdom of God. Poor man dies. The poor man dies and he is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Like nobody gets that. Everybody sees him in his life and they, and they think he did something wrong. He did something terrible. Obviously he stinks. Obviously he's in discomfort. It's probably his fault. But man, this, this, this rich man over here, everything's going well for him. His family must be immensely blessed. Because everything is so good for him. But in death, we find true value. So the poor man dies and he's carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man has died. He has this elaborate burial. But this is where he finds himself. The text tells us in verse 23 that in Hades, being in torment, being in pain, he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. Imagine the shock. Imagine the despair. This guy spent his whole life in ease and in comfort, and he dies, and he wakes up in hell, and he says, this is terrible. This is miserable. The text tells us that he is in torment, great pain, agony, and he sees at some great distance this guy that he seems to recognize. He sees Father Abraham and he sees by his side the most unlikeliest of people, Lazarus. You can imagine the shock, the dismay, the sense of injustice in his mind when he says, this can't be happening. He begged outside my gates. I shouldn't be looking over there and seeing him in the lap of luxury. I should be the one there. I shouldn't be in such torment and such discomfort. Look at this, verse 24. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. In, in death, in incredible torment, flames all around him. He sees in the distance Abraham and Lazarus. And the first thing that comes to his mind is to call out and says, Father Abraham, look, you've got to do this for me. You've got to have mercy on me. You've got to make my situation better. Look, I see Lazarus there. He, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't be a big deal for him. Send Lazarus, tell him to do something for me. You know, one of the things we pick up, one of the things we see in this text is the rich man recognized he knew Lazarus. It wasn't that he looked off in the distance and saw Abraham and said, hey, look, you've got this guy standing before you. I'm going to guess he's not as important as you. Would, you. would you help him do me a solid? Would you have him bring me some water? But instead, he looked out. He knew the man. He recognized him. He looked in his eyes, and he said, this is the poor man who is by my gate. This lets us know that he lived his life with a recognition of who this guy is. Didn't do anything to better his lot in life. Didn't do anything to care for, to provide for this poor man in his life. But in death, he wants to be served by the poor man. And this is the pain, this is the discomfort that he's in. He doesn't have some, some sentence of hubris where he says, you know, tell him to bring over a Gatorade pitcher and just set it up. Give me one of those cows and just pump it, and I'm just going to drink. Instead, he's in such torment, such discomfort, that even just the tip of his finger dipped in water would provide relief for him. Abraham hears it, and he responds. It's not a cold, hateful response. You've got to love that. Abraham responds, and he says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus and like men are bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Abraham wants him to get the finality of the situation that he's in. He wants him to understand the gravity of the situation he's in. He wants him also to recognize that he had it all, or so he thought. And in his estimation, over the the course of the rich man's life, he looked at Lazarus and he thought, he did something wrong. He did something terrible. And that's why this is his lot. But God loves me. God blesses me. And this is why this is my lot. Abraham reminds him of what his life had been like, what his earthly life had been like. And then he adds to it in verse 26. He says, besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm in order that those who would pass from here to you may not, and none may be able to cross from there to us. He says, look, number one, you need to get the gravity of the situation you're in. You need to recognize that you had everything in life, and you will have nothing in death. And besides that, friend, even if Lazarus was motivated to bring that to you, he can't do it because there's a finality in eternity. There, there, there's not this ability to, to get there and say, whoa, I was totally wrong about that. This really blows. This is really terrible. You know, I, I, if I just had five minutes, if somebody had taken me to a sauna and said, look, this is, this is kind of what it's going to be like, I would have said, surely not. I don't want to go there. Let me go over to the other side. You see, I met with a woman this week on, uh, on, on Thursday, and this is absolutely her belief. 
We're talking, we're exchanging conversations, and, and I just asked her, I said, tell me what you think about God. So she starts just kind of going on and on, talking a little bit about it. I said, that's really interesting. Tell me what you think is going to happen to you when you die. She's like, well, you know, I've done a number of bad things in my life. Watch her respond, who hasn't? She said, you know, so imagine when I get there, it's going to be uncomfortable for a little while, but God, now we're going to have this conversation. We're going to work things out, and eventually I'm going to move, and this is what it sounded like. I'm going to move from the bad part of town to the good part of town. She said, you know, I deserve to be punished for a little while, but it's okay. God's loving, he is kind, and he is going to move me after I feel appropriate contrition. He's going to move me essentially after I realize the gravity of what I've done. He's going to relocate me from that place to the good place. I told her. I said, I'm I'm really sorry. If nobody's ever told you this, but I've, I've got to let you know that the Bible I read, the way I read it, it says it's absolutely wrong. The thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you're setting your, 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 your aspirations on, it's not going to happen. It's not going to come to pass. After death comes judgment. And that's it. The place where you find yourself in eternity, there's no moving from torment to paradise. In like manner, there's no moving from blessing to hell. Where you find yourself in eternity is where you stay forever and ever. And this woman was shocked and she was dismayed. This man woke up in hell and he wanted relief. And Abraham tells him, he says, look, you will find no relief. There's a chasm between the two of us. Your lot for the rest of eternity is set. So the guy thinks about it. The guy thinks about it in verse 27. He's like, okay, I can't, I can't affect where I'm at, but, but, but maybe there's hope for someone else. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Send him there so that he may warn them, lest also they come in to this place of torment. The guy looked at his situation. He knew this wasn't a good place for anybody else to be. And he remembered that he had five brothers. Now, the guy had brothers, and, and, and obviously, or we can pick up from this text, that he thinks they're headed to the same place he is. He thinks that their eternal destiny is likely going to be the same place he is. And so on the basis of this, he says, look, I understand he can't come here, but, 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 but Father Abraham, could you just send him? Could you just equip him, give him a snack pack and send him back to earth? And if he were to go talk to my brothers, things would radically change for them. I don't want to see them here. I don't want to see my family here. I don't want to see them suffer the way that I'm suffering. I don't want this to be their reality. I don't want this to be where they end up. Could you send him back look at Abraham's response Abraham responds and he gives this amazing answer verse 29 he says they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them we're beginning to get a key we're beginning to get a window into what the point of this whole parable is about This is what the guy wants. He wants Lazarus to be reincarnated, to be sent to earth, that it would produce faith and belief on the part of his five brothers. But this is what Abraham's response is. They have the word. 
They've got Moses, they've got the prophets. They effectively have the writings of Moses. They've got the words of the prophets. They've got Malachi and Malachi 1-2 saying, I have loved you, declares the Lord. They've got this understanding of Abraham in Genesis 12 where he says, look, I'm going to make you a, I'm gonna bless you so that you might be a blessing to others. This great uh, gospel in short form there in Genesis 12. And so the man hears that and he can't receive it. He can't receive it in his mind. It's simply not enough. It's, it's not enough to bring his brothers from disbelief into belief. It, it's not enough to affect the eternal destiny. In fact, he calls out. And he said, no. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And there we get the key distinction. See, the rich man's not in hell because he was rich. Neither is the poor man in heaven because God is is predisposed to just move in salvation to affect for eternity every poor man's eternal destination. You see, the the poor man isn't there in Abraham's bosom by his side because he was poor, because his life was really terrible. In the economy of God, he said, look, you had it bad for a long time, so now you're going to have it good for all eternity. Neither is the rich man in hell because he had it so well over the course of his life, and God said, you know, you really had it too good. Now it's time to balance out the scales of things, and so I'm just going to put you in hell for all eternity. That's not it. See, there's a move in, in, in a lot of South America and Latin America of what's called liberation theology that says God is in it for the little guy. He is affecting change for everyone. He hates the rich. He loves the poor. And that's who he's in it for. What we find, the basis of their eternal destination, the basis of our eternal destination is whether or not we have believed. He points to his brother. He says, look, if you will send Lazarus back from the dead, they know him, they've been to my house, they've smelled him as they walk through my gate, if you will send him back to my house, they will see him and they will repent. If they will see him and they will believe. They will see him and they will radically change and they won't end up where I am. He thought that that would affect their eternal destiny. But Abraham responds. He says this, he says, look, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is doing a couple of things. We recognize in chapter 16 that Jesus, with, with singularity of purpose and, fo- and, and focus, is headed to the cross. He's going to go, he's going to surrender his life. He's going to willingly lay his life down, allow himself to be crucified, to die, and that God is going to raise him up again. But we recognize that even in his resurrection, people still aren't going to believe. People in his day, people in our day. They're going to hear about it. They're going to discount it. They're not going to believe. They're not going to change. They're not going to be motivated to do anything else. This is Abraham's response. It's the word of God that affects change. It's the word of God that affects change. 
Paul tells us in Romans 1.16 that it is the gospel that is the power to salvation. In Romans 10, when Paul is going down, he's talking about preaching, he says that we are communicating the gospel. In, in Corinthians 2.14, what we see in that is that we speak in Christ. What you communicate to people is the gospel. Flip over to Luke 24. Let's look at this as we, as we head towards closing. This is post-resurrection. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with some of the disciples. And he says this to them in 25. He says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And Luke summarily tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things in Scripture concerning himself. Look over here in, in, in 44. Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he moves to open their minds so that they understood the Scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third, and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. See, as we looked at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 last week, what we got at was the person we we're communicating and sharing the gospel. It's this amazing picture of strength, of power, and of finality. That, the, that God chose to speak through the prophets, that he spoke through his son, and this son is capable and powerful for all things. And what we see in this parable is that the eternal destiny of man, it hinges on our response to the God of the gospel. You can live your whole life and people can be blown away with how much money you make, how great your house is, how sumptuous the feasts and parties you throw, how dapper and debonair that you look as you go out and you mill around town, how great and fast and wonderful your car is. It's temporary, it's fleeting. How we will be measured is on the basis of our response to the truth claims of Jesus. And friends, it is with that urgency that we go out. It's, it's, it's with that urgency that we, as we make friendships and we have friendships, we recognize that, that our new friend's eternal destiny is determined according to their response to the gospel. And so we don't just seek to live the gospel. We don't just seek that, that people walk out and, and they see some graphic tea that we've got. And they're like, what is that? What is that? And you're like, oh, man, this, it says John 3, 16. It's just not just how we live, but it's how we speak. It's how we do everything. The kingdom of God mandates that we surrender everything to it. But what we speak, the message we communicate, the hope for all nations, 
is Christ and him crucified, him resurrected, and him ascended. That's the hope. That's the hope. Let me pray for us.